0: Welcome to the Mental Health Adjacent Podcast, a place of support for the supporters. My name is Abby and it is my goal to create a safe space where those that have loved ones struggling with mental health issues can feel heard and find tools to help on their journey. Here you will listen to others sharing their experiences and get advice from professionals on how to best care for yourself while providing support for someone else. Having overcome compassion fatigue myself, it is now my mission to remind the supporters that self care is not a luxury, but rather a necessity. Let's get into today's episode. Today's episode is particularly focused on romantic relationships, given the expertise of the guest. And on that note, I wanted to let you guys know that my friend Nicole La Correra a guest on a previous episode, just launched a premarital counseling course. She is offering the podcast listeners an exclusive 15% discount with the code Adjacent. If marriage is currently on the table for you, then I totally recommend checking this course out. On to today's guest, I'm joined by Carla Carreira, a somatic experiencing practitioner and sex and intimacy coach who is currently completing an MS in sexology and a PhD in psychology. Let's dive right into it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Mental Health Adjacent podcast. Today, I have Carla with me. And she has a lot of experiences in the field of mental health, both personal and as a professional. She's a psychologist, she does something very interesting called somatic therapy, Well, she'll She'll be talking about that with us later on. So welcome on, Carla. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. I'm very excited for us to chat. Me too. (laughs) So why don't we start by you introducing yourself and a little bit of what you do?
1: Um, I am a somatic experiencing practitioner. That means um, I use different techniques to help clients with fight, flight, freeze, or fawn responses or stress responses that occur in the body that get stuck as a kind of holding pattern. And I help clients move through their stresses in in a body-centered way. Another thing I do is sex and intimacy coaching. I am passionate about helping people get more connected to themselves so that they can connect to each other. I'm also a dancer, and one of the things that I love doing is putting together that, um, where it mixes movement and theater therapy exercises to grow this sense of uh, connection between people and to g- bring greater awareness of, uh, self-awareness of themselves.
0: Yes, um, I that is awesome. I love that. I know for me, something that I've been, t- I get very in my head, and I've been told a lot that I need to try and get into my body. And the best way to do that is movement. So it definitely, movement can definitely be a very powerful thing when we use it consciously.
1: Indeed. Indeed. It's very, very powerful. Um, it can help to bring relief in situations of extreme stress. And it can help to move through um to move the stress through and so it's incredibly potent and um i am a huge advocate for the power of the body to heal itself and the importance of our process to incorporate what the body is telling us into how we behave
0: that is so very interesting i would love to talk about that a little bit later on but for now i would love it if we could talk about your own experiences with mental health issues in your personal life I know we've talked a little bit about it before you told me you were also in a supporter role so if we could if you could talk a little bit about that experience as much as you're comfortable with of course
1: yes um, I'm happy to share um, there were a couple difficult situations in life that allowed me to find through what felt like a hopeless situation but at the time it certainly felt very overwhelming Uh, there were situations outside of my control and situations that you know I had more control but didn't know how to cope in a in a healthier way and so things snowballed as a result and so you know I look back at my earlier life and I think about you know there's some sadness you know because there's a sense of uh, not being not being connected to my autonomy and my self-efficacy my capacity my sense of capacity to drive and create my environment and I feel like I lost a lot of opportunities as a result of that but um, when I really look back and I see well I was really doing the best that I could there were situations that were very much outside of my control, such as a police assault. That was not something I was anticipating whatsoever when I was studying in a um, a school building. And it was late in the night and a police officer came and demanded that I leave and was very, um, very aggressive and unnecessarily so. And um, that led to him pinning me down on the ground, and it was it was unnecessarily violent, and that led to a long period of uh, PTSD, whereby I um, could not look at uniforms. It was very difficult to navigate real life. You know, and my sleep was disrupted. Um, I had a hard time trusting men, which made it very difficult for my partner at the time, and so you know, that was a, a lot to overcome. I actually even, uh, I had, I, I dropped out of school at the time. I couldn't, I wasn't able to study. My mind just uh, was too scattered. And it took me a couple years. Like there was something that with the PTSD where I was unable to read more than maybe a page at a time. Um, my attention just wasn't holding. I was listening to a lot of, um, documentaries and audiobooks to supplement my education even though I was not in school at the time but I I see education as kind of the marrow of my soul and need to understand humanity has always been a part of me and so um, it actually took a couple years to train myself to read again um, because there was something about the PTSD that that changed my my capacity to, to concentrate um,
0: in text. That is a very powerful story, um, especially right now that we're seeing a lot of things come up regarding police brutality. So we know police aren't always the, the kindest people.
1: But no, in, in this case, it, it was oh, yeah. um, just someone who wanted to, you know, abuse his control, over and that's what made it, I think, difficult to overcome was the sense that a complete stranger can come into your life and change the outcome of your life. You know, I have been teaching, um, teaching, assisting at public schools at that time. And it was uh, a difficult thing for me to look my um, BIPOC kids in the eye and tell them, you know, if you behave in these culturally white ways and you speak well uh, and prolifically, you know that that will protect you from from harm. You know, I couldn't look them in the eye anymore, and that was a great sadness because I deeply enjoy teaching. And you know, it took me um, some time to really move through the grief process uh, that this happened and the the helplessness that occurs. And so, yeah, my heart goes out to the Black Lives Matter movement and to all people who experience this kind of unnecessary um, show of dehumanization.
0: Yeah, that is a very powerful story. Thank you for sharing it with us. Um, I wanted to go back um, a little bit to when you said that looking back, you see ways that you could have coped better. I would love to know what were, well, you mentioned some of the challenges, but if we could talk specifically about, you mentioned you were also a supporter in your life for other people struggling with their mental health. So I would love to talk about that, um, the challenges you faced with that and how you would do things better now looking back and having all the knowledge you've acquired throughout the years.
1: Yeah, so in my case, I was um, the helper of a primary caregiver early in childhood uh, and through childhood. And so that was very destabilizing because I didn't have a sense of my own childhood. I was privy to information that, you know, is something that only adults should have had, you know? So I had this sense of responsibility on my shoulders at a very young age because there was so much instability in the home, emotionally speaking, where I felt like I um, I was in a way kind of the the backbone, the emotional backbone and that was a lot of pressure and so in my first major actually my second major relationship which was the longest at about 7 or 8 years um i ended up reenacting a lot of what i had learned and observed from my primary caregiver and that was quite painful um for both myself but i think more so for my partner at the time and that took a number of years for me to forgive myself because um there was a lot of ignorance that I was behaving from a lot of a lot of emotions that that didn't have a safe container to to have expression and i was externalizing a lot of that pain you know uh, putting fault at things that were outside of me and it wasn't really owning owning to my experience and owning, accepting, really, that all that happened, happened. And so there was just a lot of different layers of the process that slowly had to be um, worked through and felt so that it could be kind of put in its place as an event in my life, as a pain that I caused, as a regret that I have but that it's not determin determinant of my worth and my self-love and what I have to offer and give. And so yeah, all of that was quite a journey. And I have been in therapy for quite a number of years. And even with that support, there were just so many different aspects to the childhood trauma that needed to find a sense of stability, you know, because uh a lot of people go to therapy when they're already at that emergency point. But really, what we need is a kind of, is to have a therapeutic relationship that helps us to maintain our sense of mental health and peace. And, you know, I was in a state of, felt like emergency quite a number of years where my nervous system was very dysregulated. And you know, we we all go through trials and tribulations in life, and at the time, I was deeply personalizing it. And I, it, it was through um, a couple different backpacking trips around the world that I really came to find peace with the adversity that I had experienced by being able to communicate with and, and connect to people who also struggled and to find. You know new ways of you know accepting and new tools to lean on and so the the backpacking trip was instrumental to this transition from you know from client into a more uh into a leadership role where i see myself as being able to hold space for other people on their process and you now it was it was just at that point of transition. It was kind of the bookend from one part of my life to the beginning of embracing my capacities as the leader. And so all the years of of schooling, all the all the psychology techniques um, and theory that I had learned, the many years of the somatic experiencing uh,
0: therapy, all of that, culminated in where I'm at now. I love how you say that people shouldn't wait until they're in the crisis to seek help. I'm a firm advocate that everyone should get therapy. <laughs> we all need it. And that I love to say that sometimes we forget that we all have a mental health that we need to look after. And I think that's just it. Uh, mental health is not something that you know shows up when you're struggling with A diagnosis, or a mental illness, or whatever—like it's something that's always there, like your physical health. And so, if we don't nurture it and take care of it, then eventually it is going to lead to a crisis point.
1: Very true. That nurturance is very, very important because it really gives us a a base point, a foundation to go back to when things become, you know, when things outside of us occur, which they inevitably will you know, then we have that base point of this is what it's supposed to feel like when I am um, able to regulate myself and receive support, you know, on a consistent basis. Absolutely.
0: So I wanted to go to your job as a sex and relationship counselor. Uh, I know for the people that are supporting their loved ones with mental health issues, especially when it comes to partners to romantic partners intimacy and sex are something that very often stops happening it's kind of like a wall comes between the two people and i know it's a concern for a lot of people so i would love it if you can share maybe some tips or on how it can on hand, on how you can you know reconnect to your partner taking into account that one of the people may be struggling with something at the moment?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a very good question. Um, certainly, it's not impossible to maintain a sense of intimacy and desire while people are um, might be struggling with some mental health things at the, at, at the time. I would emphasize the importance of creating a safe space for play. So whether that's, you know, at the end of the day, when everything is said and done, and, and you know, you carve out some time, some specific intimacy time to be playful and flirtatious. And then, you know, a thought that comes to mind is, well, what happens when maybe a person is on medication, and, you know, that sexual desire that doesn't come as easily? Or, you know by the mere act of having a mental health issue going on maybe that preoccupation prevents a person from being connected to that intimacy at that point i would say you know to have this open communication about you know i'm just not feeling it and and to really create as much space as is available for each person to be supportive to where the other one is at so you know, that might mean if one person is feeling a sense of desire and the other is not, then maybe the person who isn't can be active in creating pleasure for the other person and spend some time in a giving role. You know, so th- th- there is a natural give and take that relationships go in. And it is okay that it's not going to be 50% all of the time. Sometimes people are going to be more. More givers, other times more receivers. And what's important is that both sides feel comfortable with that percentage at that given point in time. You know, um, a lot of what happens in a caregiving kind of situation where, where you're trying to be supportive to someone going through some hard time is that we end up suppressing our needs potentially. In order to meet the person where they're at. And what that does is create layers of resentment that can build down the line. And that can be a very pernicious um, to the connection over the long haul. And so I would urge against forcing yourself to be in any kind of situation where there's resentment, to really look at your boundaries and make sure that you're giving because you want to and because there's no expectations that it will be reciprocated because you don't really know when a person is struggling to what degree they'll be able to reciprocate and when. And so if that occurs where, you know, there is the sense of, you know, giving too much to then go through the internal dialogue with oneself to say, I'm giving too much. This is no longer comfortable for me. And then to take steps to meet those needs that your partner is unable to, to, to give you so that you're coming to them with a full cup rather than feeling resentful on, on top of that, that they're not able to meet your needs, not just that you're giving so much. So, you know, making sure that you have an active and proactive social life where you are gathering support and seeking support and asking for help to make sure that we are not adding to layers of resentment when we are connecting with our partner. Because sometimes there's this double layer resentment that not not only are we giving so much, but that they are unable to meet us at our needs. And so rather than adding this added pressure cooker feeling to the relationship to create situations where you receive social support or professional help yourself so that you can go into the relationship with a full pot of energy, you know, and uh, and with a full cup. So that is one piece. The other piece is about um, what I was saying about the Gottman Institute and how they have kind of what they call the four horsemen. Of the death knell of relationships, which is criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. So, when there isn't open communication uh, and uh, enough situations occur where two people feel like they're not feeling understood or validated, valued, and appreciated, there can be different responses to that of using sarcasm or feeling more sensitive to criticism or feeling more prone to give criticism. And overall, just a feeling of defensiveness or or not wanting to connect to the partner, you know, um, not moving toward the connection, moving away from it. And so I would look at, you know, the, the communica- communication dynamics that's occurring and seeing if there's a way to diminish any of that that is occurring with regard to potential criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. Um, The brain is actually prone to remembering negative information with greater frequency. And so, especially a depressed brain, you need something like five or six times as many positive things for the brain to remember over a negative one. And so it's like you need to give five compliments, at least, to offset one constructive criticism and so, I think uh, keeping all of that in mind, you know, uh, keeping one's own cup of love full so that they're coming into the relationship with availability to offer support rather than resentment. And also being aware of how the disconnection can manifest other than resentment. And really honing in on ways to communicate, uh, such as through nonviolent communication techniques um that can create an opening for two people to get on the same page because ultimately that's what's important in overcoming uh, any conflict is this uh period of repair that occurs when two people are motivated and are willing to learn the skills of understanding one another relationship repair is essential and so whether that's seeking professional help on your own or together or you know um, learning about different things through the internet or finding social support of people that can help guide things with regard to these skill sets and or even just a listening ear you know someone that can hear you when feelings come up negative feelings around you know this connection so that is what I would suggest, I, there, there are lots of different angles depending on the specifics of a given situation and the specific mental health issue. Um, some are more easier to find solutions to than others. And you know, I have a lot of empathy having been on both sides of offering support and receiving it, how difficult it can be to be on either side.
0: I love that you mentioned how easy can be to suppress your own needs when you're supporting because that is very true and something that happens way more often than it should so i love that you addressed that we had gone over the horsemen on another episode but it's always good to be reminded of it because they're very important things to keep in mind i would love to ask you though other than than sex because you know sometimes sex drive can be very low when a person is on medication or when they are struggling maybe with things like depression that makes it a little bit more difficult to you know feel that sex drive what are other ways that one can create intimacy in a relationship without the need for well without going into sex you know
1: yeah, well, there's lots, um, lots of ways to play. If sex is not the end all and be all. I think there is a lot that one can do with, you know, different kinds of desires. You know, a uh, playing with different, um, different kinds of touch, different kinds of sensations. So, uh, for example, bringing different textures, you know, into play, you know, like being blindfolded and someone coming with feathers across, and across your whole body or, you know, um, giving a massage with um, an aromatherapy oil. It can also take the form of, of cuddling and caressing. You can change the dynamic of that a little bit by adding a mirror and seeing what it does to, to the connection. If both people can look at each other through the mirror and see what it's like. To connect to 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 physically see this unity of two bodies together, um, you can also play with uh, storytelling. You know, like fantasy storytelling, where you can tell each other, um, you know, p- potential um, creating st- stories of, of desire, and playing that and relaying that to each other. You can play with kinds of kind of primal animal play you know like going around the house and embodying an animal and you know playing with how that animal would respond in their sexual energy you know maybe you're a wolf you know and you're you're kind of like lightly biting the cheek of your wolf partner so there's lots of ways to play with with um, animal animals and animal roles there's other t- you know you can use dance as a way dance to get as a way to increase intimacy the act of coordinating movements and create that bond for sure you can bring in also um, um the whatever mixture of things related to spirituality you know maybe you're lighting candles and incense and you're creating an environment of ritual and respect for the connection that you're creating an ambiance. maybe it's you know, a red light bulb that you put on and it it feels like a little, um, like a, like a sexy playroom, you know, and you transform your bedroom that way. You can play with breath work. Um, So sinking the breath or um, doing opposing breath, like one breathes in while the other breathes out. And you do that back to back or facing each other uh, with hand over heart. So yeah, there's, there's lots of different ways to play with connection that isn't, sex and um you know the, the, uh, there's also you know manual stimulation where, where hands and and mouths can go to different places but um it doesn't necessarily need to be sexual energy
0: there's a lot of ways to define intimacy those are really amazing th- tips thank you <laughs> a lot of them some very fun as well so definitely worth trying wonderful i'm glad it's uh of of use and beneficial. Absolutely. So lastly, I would love it if we could go a little bit more into somatic therapy, which is um, the other thing you specialize in, and maybe share a little bit of tips on how to deal with emotions through that, especially, you know, when we get into this crisis modes I know for for the supporters it can be really tough sometimes because we don't feel like it's safe to express our emotions to our you know partner or sibling or whoever person in our life is struggling because we want to like preserve them and protect them and so it can be really tough to express our the same way we suppress our our needs we suppress our emotions So what are some ways that we can use movement to let those out so that they don't pile up and start building on the resentment?
1: Yeah. So somatic experiencing is a it's developed by Peter Levine, who actually began by observing videos of animals and um, of prey and predators and what happens to the prey when they are able to successfully avoid being eaten or are able to run away from the predator. uh, He noticed that that animals, they have a kind of release response that that gets triggered in the body. So they run away, you know, uh, an antelope runs away from the big lion, and they shake it off as they run away. Or they play dead, you know, so that the coyote would think you know, that they were dead. And then they would, you know, uh, do a little convulsion and in off. So, you know, Peter Levine started noticing and created the hypothesis that humans also have this sense of fight, flight, freeze, or fawn inside the body, where when brought to a point of stress, that people go into these default coping mechanisms, and that when a person is exposed to stress with enough frequency, or if it's very intense, or if it lasts a long time, that people can end up developing a holding pattern of sorts where it becomes embedded in their system. And then, whenever stress occurs, they go into that freeze state, or um, they go into a fawn state. Fawn being the one most likely to develop into a kind of codependency because it's, it's the kind where you're. Um, you know, licking, licking your predator to garner good favor so that you survive. You know, so this is a lot of the behavior of a codependent is to stroke the ego of and and try to support the dominant actor in the relationship so that they stick around, so that they don't go away. So yeah, so somatic experiencing is a wonderful um, way of understanding what happens when the body get, gets exposed. To these stress responses and, and become traumatic responses. And the release can be very different. So, if a person, for example, has been attacked and at the moment of the attack they froze, you know, at, in the aftermath they might feel guilt about not having approached from a more um, fight, a place of fight. And so, maybe during a session we are inducing that, that time, that moment and allowing the client to feel more comfortable with fight response you know that often happens with people where where their voice was somehow quieted or they weren't validated at important points in their development where you know they stop learning to fight back and to defend themselves as having a, a right to dignity and a right to survive and so you know working uh with someone can bring about um, different, different release responses. And it's hard to be able to say what will occur between a given session, but um, the idea is to assist the client through different kinds of touch or different kinds of prompts to, so that the client can practice holding that stress with, uh, with a, in a short amount of time and then to find that release that wasn't there before and thereby recalibrate the nervous system so that when a similar event takes place, they have a greater capacity to cope with that stress without going to that part of the brain that is fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. They can actually use their prefrontal cortex and use their analytical skills to move through the situation because they, they weren't brought to that brink of of being hyper aroused and potentially shutting down, or potentially being
0: constantly stimulated and not
1: knowing how to relax.
0: That is so interesting. I find it to be a very different way to approach therapy than what I, I'm used to, because um, most of my life, uh, life, I've just done normal talk therapy. But it sounds very, very interesting and very practical as well, which I love yeah, I love talk therapy. I think there is a
1: lot to be, uh, a lot of information gathering that can occur about our thinking processes, how we feel about different things and, and organizing um, our needs and values. You know, there's a lot of value in that, but I think there's also a lot of value in looking into what are these responses that are actually reactions, you know, that that we don't have control over. it And it almost feels like this automatic reaction and you don't know where it's coming from. And I'll give you an example of a client. She felt the crinkling of something and it was very uncomfortable for her to listen to the crinkling, this, this weird sound. And she recalled later that day um, when we were in session and that... That crinkling, the way, the way it was, it, it, it harkened back to a time where there was this, she was at a friend's house and there was furniture with a kind of clear plastic over it. And whenever she saw, she went to a friend's house and saw that clear plastic over the furniture, um, she had this response, this agent, kind of rose because it, 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 was, it was this marker for her as a child. That this, was, that this was poverty, you know, to not be able to be comfortable because you're on a couch with plastic over it because you're trying to protect it for as long as possible because you can't afford another one, you know? So like when she heard the crinkling of that plastic and it brought forth that memory in the session, there was this ickiness feeling of, you know, and then being fully present to it and then figuring out what kind of movement would be amenable to releasing it, you know? So at the time she recalled, you know, being a child, like she really wanted to like squirm. She wanted to like shake a little bit. Like it was just kind of like, it was summertime. The plastic was very, you know, it was for her, her bum was full of sweat with the, with the plastic um, against her legs. You know, she, she it, it felt icky. She wanted to shake it off. And that was the reaction that um, she was able to go through. And so, you know, having gone through that, you know, if she goes into a a talk therapy session, she has a lot more clarity about why her body is, is reacting in a certain way and to be aware of specific triggers. And then the next time that there's some kind of plastic covering over furniture, you know, she can sit with that separation of, you know, that what happened is in the past versus I'm just sitting on a couch now and it has no significance to what happened in the past. You know, there's a greater capacity for separation um, and uncoupling the,
0: the the traumatic memory and response. I love that, that is so important. I think um, so many of us go through life in kind of like outer response And so we don't really take a look at what are the things that are causing us to respond in a certain way to a certain situation. And most of it does come from our past experiences. So becoming aware of them can really help rewrite those patterns that oftentimes can be, you know, damaging for ourselves.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I I would add that it's important that we notice resources externally, things outside of us, but also... Resources from within. You know the fact that we're still alive, that we've been able to overcome whatever situations, to really um, be a voice of our own inner strength for ourselves. For many people, this the practice of, of gratitude and having a daily ritual and connection to gratitude. It can be a really uh, rejuvenating uh, source of, of energy when a person is feeling. Dysregulated in in their mind about you know not seeing things clearly and just not having very ac- accurate perception of what might be going on. Having gratitude for all the little micro steps of where we are and where we've been, as well as the big things, you know, I think can be a really important grounding
0: source. Absolutely, I love um, doing gratitude lists, and sometimes they can be. There are so many things that we take for granted, but they're really marvelous if you take a look at it, like the fact that we can breathe clean air every day and that we have, you know, having a completely functional body is something to be grateful for because not everybody has that luxury and we often forget about those things. So taking a moment to appreciate them and be aware of them is definitely very helpful. Indeed. Indeed. And I think that can also help with uh, resentment as well. You know, when you're Feeling resentful towards the person in your life that you're having to support, which can happen, doing a gratitude of list of everything you you appreciate about them and everything they have done for you or stuff like that can really help counter that resentment that can arise for sure, for sure, um, I think
1: especially remembering you know that the moment is the moment and having this this acceptance of how life expands and contracts and that we're constantly you know shifting it between different places on that on that trajectory you know that it's not either or but rather it's we're always somewhere in between and moving back and forth and creating an acceptance about that that you know what was can be again and what was can also change and not and and be something else. And so that kind of capacity to reshift perspective, I think, can be very powerful in accepting
0: uncomfortable moments. Absolutely. And I think uh, what you mentioned about, you know, learning to separate and detach from the situations and break those patterns can also be very helpful in analyzing maybe why we're taking the role we're taking in the relationship and why we are, you know, we're we're taking certain decisions can, can also be really helpful and recontextualize um, the way we're going about being the supporter. Indeed. Indeed. Thank you so much. This has been very, very helpful. Um, lastly, I would ask you to share where people can connect with you. Um, on social media and such, where they can reach out if they have any questions or they would like to learn more about what you do. Yes, of course. Um, my website
1: is the the go to place because it, it connects to my social media, my Instagram, and also my calendar to to book sessions. Uh, that is carla carrera c a r l a c a r r e i r a dot com. If you leave your email, you'll have access to a premium video that i have set up for how to get into creativity with and curiosity how to be more curious with yourself and how to connect to that to create more moments of innovation in your life so feel free to go to my website
0: carlacarvera.com leave your email and you'll have access to that as well perfect and the link will be in the show notes so that is easy to find and access So thank you very much for being here today and sharing your experiences and your, you know, wisdom with us. It was very, very helpful. And I look forward to talking more with you in the future.
1: Fantastic. Thank you so much. It would be a pleasure to return and connect again.
0: Thank you so much for joining me today on the Mental Health Adjacent podcast. I hope you found the information shared helpful. If you liked the show, please take a few minutes to leave a review. It would mean the world to me. If you aren't yet, remember you can join the Facebook group Mental Health Adjacent Community, a safe space where we support the supporters. And you can follow me on Instagram on at mh.adjacent. Until next time.